Really? Vroom, 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 vroom. Blah, 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 I have blah, blah. to vroom, vroom my my motorcycle many times before actually leaving so that everybody knows that I'm here. Everyone must know. And that I'm a big man with a big penis. Damn straight you are. <laughs> Me? Yeah. <laughs> are you a good witch or a bad bitch? I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if this naughty to ruse your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be there. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Hi, Hannah. <laughs> Hi, Deanna. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Are we doing a podcast? I think so. Do you want to? Yeah, I think so. Awesome. What should we call it? Good witches, bad bitches. I like that name. That's, uh, and you want to talk about ladies? Yeah, I think so. Through history and maybe sometimes today. That feels like do a good idea. We didn't do an intro in last week's. Oops. <laughs> Not really. We didn't talk about what we do. We are still getting into the swing of things. Hi, Kitty. Um, we have a cat roaming around and we talk about women. <laughs> done and done. That's as simple as we can put it. I agree. Women of all shapes, sizes, colors, creeds, religions, time periods, except for the future. And we swear a lot. Lots well, I of do. swearing. You do too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you have a... On point. You have a thing to tell yes, me about. Uh, I have a thing that I want to read to you. It's a little BuzzFeed thing. I thought it would be a pretty uh, a good reminder. I know that we're... Uh, approaching the end of January now. So it's like the end of people's sort of New Year's resolutions if they're going to fall off mm. by the wayside. They're <laughs> starting to fall off by the wayside. Um, but I wanted to read a little bit uh, of an article that I think Jamila Jamil would be super proud of me for reading. Yes. Um, episode, a couple episodes ago. <laughs> the one before Ida, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Just two episodes ago. Yeah. Right? Three. Three. So this is a gentle reminder from BuzzFeed. Caroline Key writes, why liquid diets and weight loss cleanses don't actually help you lose weight. Yes, tell me. Thinking about going on a liquid diet or cleanse for weight loss? Here's what the experts think. Da-da-da-da! So basically, every January, internet becomes saturated with weight loss content and toxic diet culture is at its highest. Oh. Um, it fads to te- tend to change from year to year, like keto in, paleo out, fuck all that shit. Uh, there's one fad won't seem to die, liquid diets. They come in different forms, juices, smoothies, meal replacement shakes, broths, but the idea is the same. Drink all your meals, or most of them, and lose weight fast. The promise is it will also magically cleanse your insides and rid your body of toxins. Hint, your liver already does that for you. (laughs) Ta-da! Liquid diets, often depicted as a quick fix, a shortcut that gives you dramatic results with little effort. Why put in work when you can drink your food and call it a day? Thanks to social media and celebrity endorsements, hint, hint, cleansing and detoxing has become more popular than ever. And more recently, a liquid diet was a major part of the plot in a a television show. And then they talk some shit about Insatiable and how that's bullshit. Um, Which that got greenlit for another season. What? What? Oh, God damn it. Yeah. Um... Sure, people may not be rushing to get their jaw wired shut to lose weight, but they are voluntarily consuming liquefied food and few calories of it for extended periods of time. Liquid diets are an extreme form of restriction, but they are seldom portrayed this way. They have been normalized and rebranded as a five-day juice cleanse or the bone broth diet. What do liquid diets actually do to your body and brain, and is there ever a healthy way to do them for weight loss? For weight loss. We spoke to two experts. 
um, Dr. Michael Krupen, a uh, preventative medicine physician, uh, co-author of What to Eat When and Abby Langer, registered dietitian at the owner of Abby Langer Nutrition. Uh, liquid def- uh, for the purposes of this, liquid diet is defined as replacing all or most meals with liquids for several days or longer. We are not talking about the occasional juice or, sh- juice or shake for breakfast. This also excludes medically necessary liquid diets, which may be prescribed before or after certain procedures or for medical conditions. Oh, yeah. Da, 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 da. So what happens? You tend to lose water weight. Obviously, what's in the liquid matters. A juice cleanse, for example, is very typically low in calories, higher in sugar, whereas meal replacement shakes may provide more protein and other nutrients. For the most part, though, liquid diets tend to be lower in calories than a solid food diet. Ah. One common thread among all liquid diets uh, is that none have adequate calories or nutrients to sustain a person over the course of weeks or days. What? Imagine. Most liquid diets are meant to take weight off very quickly. They provide anywhere between 1,000 and 1,500 calories a day, depending on what and how much you're drinking. That is it? Yeah. When you go on a low-calorie liquid diet, you're essentially starving your body and forcing it to use up your stored energy. First, it starts burning through your glycogen, a form of glucose that the body stores in the liver and muscles. Glycogen also binds to several times its weight in water. So as you burn through glycogen, you lose water attached to it and somewhere between 5 to 10 pounds of water weight. Interesting. So yes, you can lose weight on a liquid diet in the beginning, but it'll probably come back pretty fast. As soon as you start eating food again, your body starts building up your glycogen again, and with that comes the water. You may start losing fat and then muscle. Muscle, no. What if you're on the liquid diet for longer? Once your body burns through the glycogen, it will go through its longer-term energy stores, fat cells, and muscle. So you can eventually lose some fat, but also muscle mass, which is hard to gain back. Yeah. After you end the diet and return to solid food, you may also ending up uh, you may also end up gaining more weight than you lost in the first place. Naturally, most people will have a tendency to overeat after ending a very restrictive diet. Your body craves food, and you overeat to compensate for the calories and nutrition you didn't get while on a liquid diet. There it is. So it's not an effective or sustainable weight loss method. You may lose some weight. It's very hard. You're not getting all the fiber and vitamins and nutrients your body needs. You're starving yourself in an unhelpful way. There are more sustainable, healthier ways to lose weight should you desire it. Because I find that, you know, for New Year's resolutions, people tend to go pretty extreme instead of setting realistic goals for themselves and actually maybe trying to work on their mental health first. Well, I think like there's, I mean, you and I talked about this a little bit at breakfast, but just like the way we view fat as a as like a thing in our body but also a thing on other people's bodies is really unhealthy and also unrealistic like we we look at it as meaning something that it doesn't always mean and that it's like this it's just this thing that you know stores up in our bodies but it's unwanted and we can just like shave it off and it'll be fine and and it doesn't affect anything but really our bodies do need fat and it also is our brains also our brains which are and, part of our bodies which are part of our bodies um and it they're they're it's important it's like actually a like toxic toxin filtering thing that we have to keep ourselves healthy and to keep our organs cushioned and insulated away from shit that like our livers can't process so theoretically though you should be going for there are some fats that are better than others yeah. But the, you know, the distinction. That's true. Like the fats from nuts and avocados and olives and things like that. Right. Healthiest. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think that but, something but that. Going out of your way to avoid fat is bullshit. Right. Fat is not the problem. The fat, like you, you mentioned mental health and that is something that is a, like 
when our bodies are overstimulated by hormones, by stress hormones and, and hormones in general, like those get stored up in our livers. And if our livers can't process it because it's performing sluggishly or whatever, like then our bodies pack on fat to protect against all those hormones and toxins that our liver can't process. So like if you want to deal with something, deal with your liver. Yeah, take care of your liver. Take care of your liver. And that's pretty fucking simple. Like there are plenty of regular old supplements that you can get at your grocery store, take it every day, regularizes you. It's great. It works. Like uh, those know. are the types of things that you should be focusing on if that's a thing that foods for liver health as you know, well. Yeah. Dude. 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 Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks, man. So hopefully everybody's got healthy New Year's resolutions and hopefully they're going well. And you know what? We love you no matter what. Exactly. And hope that you are finding your... Finding what you need yes. and getting it out of life. Exactly. What's up, witches? We have some really exciting news. We have just launched our Patreon. Yay! Woohoo! Something we've been trying to do for a while. Yes. And we've finally gotten there. Yes. And if you are not familiar with Patreon, it is basically a platform that helps content creators like us. like us make a little bit of money to help with costs associated with creating that content. Right. You can find us at patreon.com slash GWBB podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll have the link in our show notes. Yes. At the moment, we have a very basic tiered system. You get to be a patron of this show and you can opt in to whether or not you want to be a good witch patron or a bad bitch patron. It's the same if you do a minimum donation of $3 or more per month. And uh, the first 10 people of each will get a free pin corresponding corresponding to whichever option you chose. Hell yeah. And you'll get a shout out on the podcast as a good witch or a bad bitch, whichever one you choose to be. Which is pretty fucking rad. Yeah, we're pretty excited about that. And we really appreciate all of the support that you guys have given us thus far and that you'll continue to give us, hopefully, fingers crossed. And we look forward to seeing you in our Patreosphere. Hell yeah. Matriosphere on Patreon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's go with it. Cool. Cool. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. We love you. What do you got for me this week? Interestingly, I have another writer. Like last week. Like last week. I feel like you and I must have been on a a very similar wavelength when we chose our people. Yeah. Um, Because I chose Anna Akhmatova, who I'm I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong, and I'm very sorry, but she's Russian, so I'm not going to pretend that I know how to speak or pronounce Russian. Ekmetova. You do you do love to do your Russian accent. I do. And I did just watch Killing Eve where one of the main characters is Russian. So she has accent. Okay. You're welcome for that, everybody. <laughs> um so my sources are also po- poetryfoundation.org. I know. You had one from there. Um, Wikipedia was very thorough, actually, about her. Um, And then I also took quite a bit from Book Riot. And then The Guardian had a good article from 2005 that was basically like a review of a book about her. Oh, cool. So, you know, kind of roundabout, but I didn't have time to read a book about her. So. Same. Yeah. All right. So, Anna Akhmatova, originally... Named Anna Andreevna Gorenko, 
was born near the Black Sea in 1888, when Russia still had czars. Yep. Um, over the span of her life, she would experience the First World War, a messy divorce, the October Revolution, the fall of the czardom, her ex-husband's execution. Whoa! Um, the imprisonment of her son for suspicion of anti-Soviet sentiments. Oh, boy. Uh, the suppression of her work and more. Whoa. Through it all, Anna Akhmatova wrote poetry. Um, even when there was no hope of anyone reading it, she wrote it. And today she is considered one of Russia's most significant poets of the 20th century. Whoa. So people in Russia will know who she is. Like we in the U.S. are going to be less likely to know. But I mean, there's many, many reasons for why the U.S. would not know a 20th century Russian poet. Yeah. Especially a female Russian poet. Yes. Um, including like the fact that her work was so suppressed. Um, for a long time. By but the like, Soviets. By the Soviets. Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah. So, this is a little bit from The Guardian, that, that article I was mentioning. Okay. Because I liked it. I, th I just feel like it it just encapsulates her so well. But when people remember Anna Akhmatova, they do so extravagantly. Ooh. Joseph Brodsky, one of the circle of young poets who adored her when she was old, said, In conversation with her or simply drinking tea or vodka, you became a Christian, a human being in the Christian sense of the word. Simply drinking vodka. <laughs> simply, Russia. you know, as you do. Hashtag Russia. Um, <laughs> Anatoly Nauman, I think that's how you pronounce that, another in that circle, remembered that after meeting her, he was, quote, stunned by the fact that I had been in the presence of someone with whom no one on earth had anything in common. Okay. <laughs> Isaiah Berlin, throwing himself on his hotel bed after spending a day and a night talking to her in Leningrad, exclaimed, I am in love. I am in love. So uh, she was a poet from a young age. She, I mean, she started writing poetry at like 11 years old. Wow. And she was published early, too. Um, and she, early on, she changed her last name to Akmatova from, what was it, Gorenko? Because her dad was like, I don't want you to put the family name on your fucking bohemian, you know, nice. bullshit poetry. Nice. And so she was like, all right, I'll just go ahead and take this this name from oh, interesting. some old um, Tatar, Tatar, Tatar? Um, royalty basically she was pretty sure she was she was related to a, sh a shah from long ago and their last their name was akmat and so she what took that and called herself anna akmatova that's weird it's interesting because i just assumed it was her married name nope nope that was her pen name she married um when she was like, I think, 21 or something, she married a young poet named Nikolai Gum Gumilev. 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 Um, who she had met when she was in her mid-teens. And uh, he... Well, they didn't rush into it. How nice. Well, he oh. pursued her intensely for years. Like, she <laughs> met him, I think, in 1901. And he was... He proposed marriage to her for years on like over and over again until 1905 <laughs> i know it's tempting to laugh except that he apparently attempted suicide several times because a... she kept rejecting him yes oh boy yes oh boy um because we all know that that's the key to a woman's heart you know guilting her yeah mm -hmm. massive suicidal guilt trips um but she finally <laughs> married him 
in uh, oh in 1910. Oh, so she met him in 1905, married him in 1910. Got it. Um, by which time he had kind of already grown tired of her, but it was like, okay, well, I've been pursuing you for five years, so I may as well. Oh my god. We may as well just make this official. Okay. So they they married and they went and honeymooned in Paris. Nice. Where he immediately was like, "All right, I'm going to go see my friends. Peace." And she was like, "All right, I'm going to go have an affair with this Italian artist that I just met." And she had this like passionate, intense affair. Oh my god. With an artist named um Amadeo Modigliani. And he was he was famous in his time and had several portraits of her, like nudes and beautiful like sketches of her Ooh. that they you know discovered years later were Anna Akhmatova. Um, so send nudes. One second, <laughs> having it painted. Here you go. <laughs> then I'll send it to you. <laughs> Three days. Yeah, yeah. And they they apparently met up a couple of times over the years and like you know rekindled their passionate passionate sexy affair nice um but basically when anna and her husband got back to russia they just kind of did their own thing like they did not have a conventional marriage he went off on a um on a trip to africa for six months because he was a big traveler like that was his thing okay and so they lived separately was he you said he was a poet he was a poet yeah um, so they lived separately for most of the time. Uh, one of his strongest passions was travel, and he went to Africa many times. Um, so she had several affairs during their, their marriage. Well, yeah. Because she was just a really sexual person. She just, I guess, that was just a kind of a thing that she did. She well, just, like, fell in love easily. and wasn't living with her. And yeah. And he didn't, I, I don't he, think he minded, really. Like, I don't know that it was something that he didn't know about. It was just a thing that he was kind of like, all right. I mean, I'm making an assumption, but, you know, it, they were together for eight years. There's no way that that, that wasn't clear. Um, so her only son, Lev, was born on uh, the 18th of September in 1912. And Anna pretty much immediately entrusted her newborn son to the care of her mother-in-law. Okay. Who lived in a different town. And then she just went back to St. Petersburg and you know, went and lived her her poet life okay. without her son. Um, <laughs> and she, over those few years, she published several books of poetry. They were reprinted dozens of times, translated into several languages. They were one of those, they were those books that like people like carried around with them and read in cafes because oh. she had a thing for themes of unrequited love and she she talked very passionately in her poems. And so they were very much like a thing that all the young young people had. And they kind of right. expressed those, all those feelings. those hormones. Mm-hmm. Yep. We've all been there. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, it was interesting, though, because she, she talked a lot about what it meant to be promiscuous and to want love and to also be conservative and feel like well that's not something i'm allowed to have because i am i'm promiscuous like it's it would be weird if someone loved me in a tender sort of quote pure way because i've already had sex so many times so she had this weird sort of like cognitive dissonance there yeah and she talked a lot about that um and it actually someone someone i can't remember the critic's name but in 1923 a critic um did a review of one of her poetry books and talked about that and he called her both a nun like half nun and half whore 
Okay. Because of those themes and because of like, I mean, he obviously didn't think much of her work, but that was why he said that. So by the time her second book was published, she had acquired a name for herself in literary circles. She exuded this aura of mysterious charm and apparently sadness <laughs> that drew scores of admirers. I mean, I feel like a lot of poets, poets specifically, mm-hmm. kind of exude this sort of like melancholy. Yeah. At, at le- because, you know, they work through some shit with their poetry. <laughs> yeah. And so that's how people view them through their art. Yep. Exactly. Like I even think of like modern poets and and even though they may present as like this really positive light person on social media or what have you, yeah. like their work speaks volumes and you kind of view them through that lens. Yeah. Anyway. Exactly. Sorry. Don't mean to. And she took advantage of that for sure. I mean, yeah. she had a, she was apparently like never seen on stage without her shawl. She had this like shawl that she draped over herself and just sort of, she was always in these slinky dresses and. She knew. She knew that she had this, like, power mm. over the audience. Also, mm. she was apparently six feet tall, which I think is... Nice. Pretty... Yeah, she was very statuesque. Um, Bitch, me too. The fuck? I thought you would like that. Thanks, I do. <laughs> so during this time, which was considered the Silver Age in, in Russia, in, you know, their literary... Not the Golden Age, but the Silver Age. The Silver Age. And it was very short. It was only, like, five years or so. Um, but it... Um, there was this called the Silver Age for artists. Like it was just kind of this bohemian light time and lots of good art was coming out, lots of good writing. And she used to go read her poetry at um, the smoky cabaret, the stray dog. And that was like where all of the artistic elite in, in St. Petersburg went. Ooh. And it wasn't just poetry. It was like if you were a dancer, you would go and you could perform there. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. It was just a very artistic kind of place. Yeah. And that was normally where you could find her. But uh, but the Silver Age came to an end quite quickly. And in July 1914, Akhmatova wrote, Frightening times are approaching. Soon fresh graves will cover the land. And on August 1st, Germany declared war on Russia. Wow. Yep. Um, which marked the start of the world dark storm quote of world war civil war revolution and totalitarian oppression yeah uh, there's a lot that's happening to russia in the 20th century so much and she lived through so much of it right um so for the bohemian elite of saint petersburg one of the first manifestations of the new order was the closing of the stray dog because they didn't meet wartime censorship standards. Oh, boy. So her poetic voice was also changing, you know, because of the times. And more and more frequently, she abandoned her private love-centric lamentations for civic and, and prophetic themes, even. She apparently considered herself kind of, like, clairvoyant hmm. and sometimes it called herself... Like- yeah, I mean, she wrote that poem in nineteen in July nineteen fourteen, and then war was declared in August. But, oh, um, but sometimes she called herself Cassandra, Aww. who, if if listeners don't know, was um a Greek prophet, a Greek prophet who she was given her gift by Apollo, and when she slighted him, he said he cursed her with. Never, sight but no one would believe her nev- no one would ever believe her mm-hmm. and so when she said hey we're trojan war is coming they were like ha ha you're wrong you stupid no bitch. one believed her 
Um, so in February 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution started in, in St. Petersburg. <sighs> yeah, soldiers were firing on marching protesters and others mutinied. So in a city without electricity or sewage service, oh boy, a city with little water and no food, um, they faced starvation and sickness. Fun. Yeah. Her friends died around her and others left in droves for safe havens in Europe and America. And she had the option to leave and she considered it for a while, but she chose to stay and was Whoa. proud of her decision to stay in Russia. Um, because she had this deep belief that a poet can only sustain his or her art in their native country. Interesting. Yeah, it was just like that was her thing, and it remained her thing forever. Yeah. She she had several opportunities to go and didn't hmm. because her art was so important, and she felt like my I art can't do it. Yeah, yeah, can't do it without without Russia. She wrote um, a poem. A little bit of it goes like this. You are a traitor and for a green land have betrayed, yes, betrayed your native land, abandoned all our songs and sacred icons and the pine tree over a quiet lake. A green land was England. Hmm. And so it was this like, you know, sort of admonishment of her friends and, and countrymen for leaving. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's kind of nationalist in a way. It is. Like if you want to be a Russian artist, you can't leave Russia. Yeah. You you were no longer a Russian artist. You yeah. are an English artist. And why would you aren't even that properly because you're not from there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, but she she it was a weird kind of nationalism because the it was not the same nationalism as the Bolsheviks. Of course not. Obviously. And so she fought against that for a long time right um so in 1918 she divorced gumilev and that same year she married another poet and scholar vladimir shaleko whom she had met at the stray dog pr in previous years back when it was still open yeah <laughs> she later said i felt so filthy i thought it would be like a cleansing like going to a convent knowing you are going to lose your freedom what getting married again like getting rid of her former marriage and then marrying again like she was like she was starting clean almost but also sort of being i don't know how to weird yeah yeah um so the bolshevik regime often converted abandoned mansions of russian nobles into into housing for scholars and artists and bureaucrats that had been deemed useful um, the rest of them, of course, could just, you know, do what what all of the other citizens were doing. Starving? Uh-huh. Um, and honestly, these people weren't not starving <laughs> either. They were just had a bit better housing. Well, and they had to obviously censor themselves. Oh, yeah. Um, because if you were no longer deemed useful, you could lose everything. Yeah. And her new husband was a scholar. And, and so he was therefore considered worth having around. Um, so the two of them lived in this mansion for two years with, you know, it had been converted into apartments. And so they had a bunch of other scholars around in that same building. Got it. Um, they moved into another mansion in the twenties, but despite the fact that it looked beautiful and opulent, it was 
it really wasn't like food and everything else that you need to live were in short supply just like for everyone else yeah um apparently the story that i came across was that they were both heavy smokers and so that's how they were able to get away with not eating as much no but matches were in short supply and so they would every morning they would get out of bed and go out into the street and ask someone on the street for a light because like they were living in this crazy opulent mansion and still had to go ask random strangers on the street for a, a match to light their cigarette. Like that was wow. that was just that, how it was. Very crazy. Huh. Um, and obviously all of these changes were sudden and extreme. And Anna, who had been kind of part of the, you know, bourgeois class for a long time. I mean, she grew up in an aristocratic family. Mm. she became very homesick for the past and mm. she started to lament that things weren't like they used to be before the bolsheviks came and upended all the shit mm. um and that was apparently a really bad idea <laughs> being in the public eye as she was um <laughs> because they were watching her oh, and they really? you know yeah they were like okay well she's obviously anti-bolshevik and that's not okay um, and her ex-husband ended up being arrested and executed for... Uh, her first husband? Her first husband. Yeah, sorry. Her first husband. No, you said ex. And she's, Did I? She's, okay. Yeah. Um, I was just clarifying for my own sake. Some guy in prison named him as a conspirator, co-conspirator in this anti-Bolshevik plot. And he was arrested and executed. And it was only after he was executed that it turned out that was fake. That was that wasn't true oh no but a lot of of upsetting yeah that put a lot of pressure on her and made things look not great for her and um and obviously her son too right so um she wrote after that happened terror touches all things in the dark leads moonlight to the axe there's an ominous knock behind the wall a ghost a thief or a rat I know. It kind of like gives you chills. So critics began referring to Akmatova as, quote, a relic of the past. Oh, boy. And an anachronism. Um, fellow poets got with the times and they spurned her more traditional approach. Um, eventually, as the iron grip of the state tightened, Akmatova was denounced as an ideological adversary. Uh huh. <laughs> Finally, in 1925, all of her publications were officially suppressed. Her books would, would remain banned for 15 years. Whoa. Which sucked because she that was how she made money. That was her living, was selling her writing. Jesus. Um, and so the, the only other way she found to make money for herself was translating um, other works. Like Pushkin was somebody that she was very interested in and knew really well that his works and so she was constantly like translating those works i believe in english but i'm not sure hmm. um so in 1926 she and her second husband got divorced and she moved in with her lover nikolai punin and his family it was weird because so they lived in the same palace as she and her second husband and she just moved apartments and her situation with him was really weird because she viewed them as married like they didn't actually get married but she was like you're my husband but he had another wife and they she lived with him and his wife in that in that apartment okay i mean 
I mean, yeah. If everybody's on board, I guess. Yeah, everyone was. She lived with his first wife, and then he divorced and got married another time, a second time. To someone who wasn't to her? To someone who wasn't her, and she continued to live with them. What? How fucking weird is that? That's a, that's a new It was pretty one. new. Yeah. It's radical. <laughs> so she, for years, she shared her quarters with um, Poonin's wives, daughter, and granddaughter. And after her separation from him at the end of the 1930s, she continued to live. That was a long time. You said she moved in like 1926? Yeah. Yep. Crazy. What? Um, so he, at some point during all of this, was arrested and, and put in the gulag, where he spent much of the next 20 years gulag. until he, he finally died there in 1953. Oh, my God. Which is awful. And but she remained with his wife. She and his wife lived together. His second wife lived well, together. They were a family, I guess. Yeah, I mean, really, she kind of became became a yeah family with him with her. Um, platonic, so, do you think, or what? I have no idea. Is there any speculation on that? Because it's interesting. It's very interesting. There was not a lot of speculation. Yeah, I don't know. Nobody's no. I couldn't find anything about it. But it is, it kind of seems like it could be more than that. She was a very sexual person. Who knows? But it was also convenient because at the time, th- there, where else was she going to live? I don't know. You know? And she didn't. Well, because her, she couldn't work because her writing was banned. Yeah. She translated things, but that only got you so far. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so she had very little food, almost no money. The impact of the nationwide repression and purges, the Stalinist purges, um, I think I think that's what it was. Yeah. Had a decimating effect on her St. Petersburg circle of friends, um, her other artists and intellectuals. One of her close friends and fellow poet uh, Mandelstam was deported and then sentenced to a gulag labor camp where he would die. Jesus. So like people around her were being arrested and sent to Siberia to work until they died all like all around her. Wow. Um, she very narrowly escaped arrest, though her son Lev was imprisoned on numerous occasions. Oh, boy. And he was accused of counter-revolutionary activity based pretty much on the fact that counter-revolutionary. At that point, it's the new revolution. Yeah, exactly. You're the man now. Very like intensely so but he was only under suspicion because of her they what? they arrested him several times because he was her her son oh my god <laughs> i mean freaking insane and she would go and and line up for hours to deliver him food packages and plead for them to let him go but because she was anna akmatova they were like no we're not gonna let your son out because you're bad news that's stupid um, so she she did not write much original verse during those 15 years. Sure. But what, I wouldn't either. Yeah. But what she did compose, which was in secrecy under constant threat of search and arrest, is a monument to the victims of Joseph Stalin's terror and very likely her most famous work. Um, it was called Requiem. So between 1935 and 1940, she compo- composed this long narrative poem. It was whispered line by line to her closest friends on days when they came to visit her, and they quickly committed to memory what they had heard. 
Akmatova would then burn in an ashtray the scraps of paper on which she had written that day's line or stanza. If found Holy by the secret shit. police, this narrative poem could have unleashed another wave of arrests for subversive activities. Her friend It's amazing that it exists today that we we know it. Yeah, it's only because she had other poets as friends who were secreting out her her words line by line line by line and i love what her friend wrote lydia chukovskaya said it was like a ritual hands matches and ashtray a ritual bitter beautiful and bitter wow yeah so uh requiem documents her personal experience of this time as she writes 100 million voices shout through her tortured mouth Part one, one stanza in this is 17 months I've pleaded for you to come home, flung myself at the hangman's feet, my terror, oh my son, and I can't understand. Now all's eternal confusion, whose beast and whose man, how long till execution? Mm. I know. It makes me want to like cry a little bit. Sorry if I do. In 1939, Stalin randomly approved the publication of one volume of poetry but like it pretty much immediately decided that that was a bad idea and had all the copies burned fucking idiot <laughs> yeah um in 1993 it was revealed like way after they found out it was revealed that the authorities had bugged her flat and kept her under constant surveillance keeping detailed files on her from this time, accruing some 900 pages of denunciations, reports of phone taps, uh, and confessions of those closest to her. Well, good thing she whispered all that poem. Seriously. My God. <sighs> Dick bags. I mean, God. Yeah. And during World War II, Stalin apparently changed his mind at, at some point. And decided that she was important to Russia because of, you know, her literature, her literature stature, her literary stature, whatever. Um, and what had year her was this? in uh, in 1942. Okay. He had her evacuated to Uzbekistan during the 900 day siege of Leningrad. Do you know? 900 days? Yeah. Long, long time. Good God. Yeah, the Siege of Leningrad is one of the most, like, upsetting things to read about because, I mean, the Germans were so fucking awful. Do you know anything about it? It's basically, like, they 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 made it impossible to import food in. There was no, there just was no such thing as food during that time. And people would make loaves of bread out of, like, paste and shit, you know, uh, paper and um, anything they could find. <laughs> And people starved, I think, by the thousands. It was really horrible. Yeah, it was really horrifying. That part of history. People couldn't leave because they were surrounded. They were under siege the entire time. So citizens. The, citizens. Russian citizens. Yeah. In Leningrad. And so she was, she was got, they got her out. Mm. And she spent those, those two years in Uzbekistan and she... From what I remember reading, because I didn't put it in Even my notes. Even though they were super suspicious of her 
sympathies. Yeah. But I'm they not, were like, but she's famous and she's a Russian artist. So I'm honestly not sure what it was that made them go. We should get her out of here. Maybe it's because she'd been quiet and she didn't really write anything like they bugged her and she didn't publish. She didn't. And she was good at keeping her shit secret. Yeah, could be. So they were like, maybe she's OK now. That was her reward. I don't know. Yeah. Well, she came home um, in 1944, and she wrote of how disturbed she was to find, quote, a terrible ghost that pretended to be my city. Oh. Um, in 1946, Stalin, I guess, like, changed his mind again, because, like, that's just what he does. Um, after she associated with some people who Stalin con- considered to be possible spies, another oh, another boy. writer named Isaiah Berlin came and visited her, and that was like a big no-no. And he started an official campaign against the, quote, bourgeois um, individualistic works by Akhmatova and other artists. And one of his, uh, I don't remember what what position this guy had in Stalin's, government but andre uh i'm not gonna pronounce this correctly jadanoff i don't know something like that um he guesses as good as mine he publicly (laughs) labeled her um half whore half nun that guy uh uh-huh well he took that work he took that critique from 20 years earlier and used it against her he used that against her? Yeah, he used this other, this random reviewer's words. When, 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 oh. that, when that guy reviewed her book in 1923, he, he said, oh, well, her themes make her seem like half nun, half whore. And then this guy in 1946 was like, well, that's a real problem for the, you know, our regime. And so they they just commenced We don't this. want any half nun, half whore women in here. <laughs> yeah. Get out they with com- your half nun, half whore bullshit. They commenced this crazy like campaign against her. They banned her poems from publication again, again um, accusing her of poisoning the minds of Soviet youth. Oh, my God. Yeah. Her surveillance was increased, uh. and she was expelled from the Union of Soviet Writers, which she had been a part of like as a translator, and that was bad news because you were only allowed to get a food ration if you were part of a union. So she what was, a fun time. She wasn't allowed to get food. Of course, as a result of all this, her son was arrested again. At because the end, of her? Uh-huh. At the end of 1949, and he was sentenced to 10 years in a Siberian prison camp. Oh, my God. The gulag. Um... And she finally was like, all right, all right, I will write you some super pro-Stalin poetry and show you that I'm loyal to this government. Like, anything. Just let my son go, please. Yeah, get him out of there, please. And she did it. She, like, she wrote all these poems and, and read them out at poetry readings, and it did not convince Stalin. And he... Yeah, because he was a fickle bitch. Mm-hmm. So he he... Kept her son in there, and even though Stalin died in 1953, Lev wasn't released until 1956, which is just awful. That's some petty bullshit. (laughs) It really fucking is. But thank God he died (laughs) because she was finally able to start publishing her poetry again. Yeah. So that that 15-year period finally ended. Um, And uh, for her 75th birthday in 1964... New collections of her verse from throughout her career were published. Oh. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. And um, 
1966, at the age of 76, she died of heart failure. Um, thousands attended two memorial ceremonies held in Moscow and in Leningrad. And after being displayed in an open coffin, ooh, she was interned in St. Petersburg. Interred? Interred. Interned. She interned as a dead person in St. Petersburg. Thank you. Interred. Akhmatova achieved full recognition in her native Russia only in the late 1980s, when all of her previously unpublishable works finally became accessible to the general public, and that was including Requiem. Huh. It was the first time anyone read it. Um, in 1989, her centennial birthday was celebrated with many cultural events, concerts, and poetry readings. The communal apartment... Um, at the mansion where she lived with her second husband and then her lover um, and his wives. And his wives. <laughs> um, so where she lived for almost 40 years is now the Anna Akhmatova Museum. Oh, cool. Let's go. I don't want to go to Russia. <laughs> I know I would say yes, but Russia seems like a terrible place to be right now. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Whew. That was, that was a lot. How... I mean, it's crazy that I've never even heard of her. How did you find her? Pinterest. <laughs> Weird. Randomly. I think I found, I stumbled across one of her poems while looking for something else. And I was like, oh, what is this? And I just searched her and I don't know. There was just so much about how she struggled and how she tried to stay true to herself and what she believed in and how at odds that was with what was going on even though it shouldn't have been i'm like i don't know but how she really dug her feet in and was like i'm not gonna leave yeah like i am fucking russian that's like who that's, i am i feel like that is super russian that's so russian to be like fuck you <laughs> i'm fuck staying you. i am russian i stay in russia yeah don't care about you, Bolsheviks. This is some Bolshevik shit. It's a Bolshevik, Bolshevik, Bolshevik shit. Mm. Bolshevist. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I've got some on this day in history. Okay, lay it on me. Let's go. 1570. What? What's today? Oh, yeah. Good point. <laughs> Today is January 23rd. Great. Okay, good. 1570, James Stewart, the first Earl of Moray, regent for the infant king James VI of Scotland, is assassinated by firearm. The first recorded instance of such event. Assassination by firearm? Mm -hmm. Crazy. Yep. 1570. 1570. Um, 1571, Queen Elizabeth I of England opens the Royal Exchange in London. Good for her. Which is basically considered like the first bank, kind of. Good for her. Yeah. Um, she did a lot. Yeah. Which is kind of why there's a lot, a lot of women-centric things on my list today. Hell yeah. Um, 1849, Elizabeth Blackwell becomes the first woman in the U.S. to earn a medical degree. 1849? Yep. That is earlier than I thought it was going to be. I know. I was surprised. Uh, let's see. 1897. Elva Zona Heaster. 
That's a name. What a name. Is found dead in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. Resulting murder trial of her husband is perhaps the only case in U.S. history where the alleged testimony of a ghost helped secure a conviction. Oh, my God. What? Her ghost helped them solve her murder. That is insane. We need to look up more about that shit. What? I agree. Who... What, did they have a clairvoyant, like a medium come in, probably? I have no idea, uh, but we got to look it up. Yes. I, <laughs> I roused the cat with how absurd that was. Yeah. 1970, member of Dutch feminist group Dalmina burned their bras in Amsterdam. All right. I just liked that. In the uh, winter. <laughs> feminism is getting started, yeah. I guess you can hide your titties under some thick sweaters. <laughs> hide those titties. Under Not that you want sweaters. to hide them, but, you know. 1973, uh, President Nixon announces an accord <laughs> has been reached to end the Vietnam War. Great. Yeah. Yep. Supposedly. Okay. Births. <laughs> the only one I wrote down. 1937, John Hancock. First right. governor of Massachusetts. Well done. G- <laughs> give me your John Hancock on this. <laughs> the most famous signature in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and then deaths, um, I wrote down just a couple. 1989, Salvador Dali. Rips. Who was a Spanish painter. And With a wild mustache. Yep. Yeah. Um, 2005, Johnny Carson. Aww. Who was an American television host. And a great one. And a great one. And that's that. That's, nice. That's all my history I got for you wonderful i'm done learning you for today i appreciate <laughs> appreciate appreciate you do i do uh well, why don't you tell me something you're excited about okay so one of the presents that i got this holiday season that mm-hmm. i'm really excited about and it's very on brand for this podcast it's called the nasty woman game a card game for every feminist <laughs> and i really i should have brought it over we need to play it ASAP. So it's a Kickstarter funded like game. Uh, it's apparently like similar to Cards Against Humanity uh, or like Apples to Apples. And it includes short bios for 20 iconic feminists and important terms and phrases you'll encounter while you play. Instead of relying on racism, sexism, misogyny, and transphobia like some other social games, <laughs> Nasty Woman doesn't make the players the punchline. Instead, you set the tone, whether funny, serious, irreverent, or downright aggressive. Each player can be strategic and creative while learning, venting, and plotting with friends. Don't know a name on a card? Just ask. Feeling angry as hell? No judgments. Got a plan to save the world? Girl, we need you. <laughs> To win, you'll have to outwit your fellow players, use your sleuthing abilities, and above all, don't get trumped. That's funny. Uh, uh, designed for women by women. Yay. Um, woman designer, illustrations by a woman comic artist. Uh, but you don't have to be a woman to enjoy playing it, although warning, your alt-right uncle may not get it. <laughs> Cards include cutting-edge illustrations and all-over striking design. Blah. We don't need to talk about that. Um, use Nasty Woman to articulate the absurdity of the present and in doing so, change the future. The game should last about 45 minutes, can run longer, especially when everyone starts telling jokes and related stories discussing politics and pop culture. In playing, you and your friends will make your voices heard and grow louder. It's on Bustle's most wanted list. <laughs> Is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And now I have it. Is there a website? Like, where do you buy it? Well, that's Amazon. 
okay um that i was looking at good good um i i also found their like kickstarter um but that seems irrelevant at this point yeah you can get it on shrill society players take turns drawing cards hoping to avoid cards like attack of the all lives matter sympathizer (laughs) oh my god and the dreaded trump card i love it as you go you want to collect nasty woman cards which feature feminists throughout history from ida b wells to ruth bader ginsburg to serena williams it's also statement cards, similar to typical Cards Against Humanity cards, where people have to finish a prompt like, rejoice, it's 2030. Women can finally blank. <laughs> can. Mm. The goal is to be the last nasty woman standing. I like it. But I'm really excited to play it. And Fuck it's yeah. a really great gift. You better bring that over next time. I know. <laughs> Soon. Soon. Girl, thanks. You're welcome. I am excited about that game. Thanks. Me too. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, find us on social media. Yep. GWBB podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and at gmail.com. Yeah. Also on Facebook. Yeah. And our website. GWBBpodcast.com. Yeah. Where you can find all of our episodes. It's beautiful. We got a new website relatively recently. It looks real cool. We're still still working on a few little aspects of it, but it's doing its thing. It's doing its thing and doing it well. Yep. Um, please leave us a review on iTunes if you can, because... Rate, review, subscribe, subscriptions are beautiful. Yes, please. And, uh, we're so, we're so happy to have you. We're so happy. Okay, let's get out of here. You just pulled a me. I know. That was beautiful. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And peace out, witches. Bye. Was that pretty? It was pretty. It was gorgeous. I do the same thing every time. I like it. Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you for listening. (laughs) You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Blueberry, and more. Basically anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Mm -hmm. If you like our podcast, it would be really helpful if you could please like and subscribe, rate and review, share with your friends on social media, word of mouth, Mm -hmm. all of that. It's great. Yes. And you can find us on Twitter at GWBB Podcast. Instagram is the same. And we are on Facebook under Good Witches, Bad Bitches Podcast. And hey, guess what? If you want to hear all of our episodes, they are all up at our website, GWBBpodcast.com. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to share with us and that you want us to share on our podcast at some point, you can email us at GWBBpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, guys. You know what? If you like what you hear, maybe please consider a little bit of supporting us financially by visiting our tip jar. Um, The link is in the show notes. Every little bit helps. It just kind of makes it so that we can keep this going so that it has some longevity. So just think about it. See see how you feel about it. Or you can support this podcast directly by buying us a coffee on our (laughs) Ko-Fi. So that is ko-fi.com slash GWBB podcast. Um, Coffee start at $3 because that's generally the price of a fancy coffee and it just helps us keep the ship going. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is produced by Moon Bounce and powered by Pinecast. Boom, boom, boom. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening.